This morning, we're continuing our series uh, on Christian virtue, and we're looking um, at a word, at a phrase that can be translated in lots of different ways into English, moderation, temperance, or self-control. And we're going to be looking at uh, what that looks like, what the virtue of self-control looks like uh, in our uh, passage this morning from 1 Samuel 24, verses 8 to 22. And this is the story of David uh, after uh, he encounters the king Saul, who is pursuing him, uh, who is pursuing David uh, to kill David uh, in a cave in the wilderness. And so we read uh, what happens here. 1 Samuel 24, verses 8 through 22. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And Saul wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul, and Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Children, especially those of the toddler variety, uh, struggle with what we understand as self-control. When I was about five years old, a pan of mint brownies taught me that always doing what I wanted uh, might not be the best way to approach life. Uh, So I saw a pan of mint brownies, which I loved previously to this moment. I thought they were wonderful. Uh, My mom left them on the counter, and she didn't realize that I could move a chair around and stand (laughs) up there and, and eat. So I went up, and I thought, she must have left this all for me. 
um, I don't know, you know, she's doing something else somewhere else, so I'm just going to eat it all. And I did. I did eat it all. Um, eating that entire pan in one, you know, within like an hour or so, um, it ruined both my afternoon and evening and the next day. Uh, but also my appetite for mint chocolate to this day. I don't like it. It's not good to me because um, I remember that day. Most children are similar. They're controlled by their appetites and emotions. Toddlers tend to do whatever suits them in the moment. They're like some wild animal. Their erratic behavior is led by instinct and, and seemingly nothing else. Some toddlers at bedtime can best be described as living contradictions full of demands. Uh, when you put a child to bed, they say, cover me up, sing me a song, read me a book. I want to play. My sisters stay up longer than I do. Why can't I stay up? At our house, nap time with, uh, with Sam has lately become not a time for sleeping, but outright rebellion. He will throw everything out of his crib and just yell for us to come and get him. So it's kind of this battle of wills going on uh, every afternoon. Of course, we like to think that we are better off than rebellious toddlers. Surely, as we get older, we leave behind childish whims and gain the ability to choose the right path and overrule our base desires. Our adult minds possess more clarity and maturity and wisdom than a defiant child still learning appropriate behavior. Sadly, that's not usually the case with most of us. Humanity has always struggled to practice, much less master the virtue of self Control of controlling our own impulses and desires, our, our, our will. Even though scripture shows the ability to say no uh, to our natural appetites, frees us to say yes to the abundant life that Jesus promises to believers, we still struggle with doing the right things at the right time and in the right way. We make bad choices, and we make bad choices in every arena of our life. We get frustrated uh, with ourselves when we eat more than we uh, intend, when we watch TV for longer than we want to. We get frustrated when we don't control our decisions. In John's gospel, Jesus declares that obedience, the decision to choose what God commands over and above our own inclinations, ushers us into the blessings of his kingdom and a deeper relationship with God himself. But despite these instructions, we consistently fail to choose not only what is morally right and good, but what God provides for our own benefit. We see this in the life of faith all the time. Wanting to read scripture, we get bored and seek distractions. When we uh, set out to pray, we might sometimes fall asleep. When we set our minds to be kind to that obnoxious person at work or in our family, we instead ignore them or are rude in response. The problem is that sin directs our souls. And so our choices often feel like they rest beyond our control, that we're always wrestling with ourselves for control of the steering wheel. There's a shortcut on the iPhone uh, that allows you to replace a particular word with another word or phrase, and people realize that could be used to great comedic effect, uh, especially young people. This is sort of a prank that I've seen 
uh, uh, out there. So one boy altered his mother's phone so that whenever she wrote, I love you, the phrase, I'm secretly obsessed with hedgehogs, uh, appeared instead. Okay, so the family group text was extremely confused because she was typing I love you, but all they saw was I'm secretly obsessed with hedgehogs at the end of every conversation. Uh, One girl directed her friend's phone to paste the entire, the entire Gettysburg address every time she wrote the word hey. Her social life did not improve. (laughs) Our lack of self-control thwarts us in a similar way. Haunting any area of life where decisions are made, but especially the life of faith. When we look in the mirror, we don't see Jesus, but the tragic face of someone who knows what to do, who knows the, the steps to take, but fails to keep their hearts in check. Johnny Cash, the country musician who battled addiction most of his life, described sin as the beast and me liable to lash out and lead him away from the Lord at any moment. Preacher J.I. Packer said it this way, Alive in Christ, the heart of the Christian delights in the law, and he wants to do what is good and right and keep it perfectly. But he cannot achieve the compliance at which he aims. Whenever he measures what he has done, he finds he has fallen short. Thus, the Christian's moral experience is that his reach persistently exceeds his grasp, and his desire for perfection is frustrated by the distracting energies of indwelling sin. Our lack of control prevents us from pursuing obedience, from stepping into the life that Jesus promises leading us to deep frustration and sometimes even despair. But David's discretion in the cave with Saul shows how the virtue of self-control addresses our very human limitations and liabilities. Many of us know the story of David, or we know some stories of David. We know the story of a young David slaying Goliath. We might know his later affair with Bathsheba, but his complex relationship with Saul, the first king of Israel, dominated David's early life. Before spiraling into a tragedy that that nearly engulfed Israel in civil war, David served on the royal court as both a musician and armor bearer. Now, David served a unique role for Saul. He wasn't just a a military consultant or a soldier or a, or a political advisor. He was the only person who brought the king peace whenever an evil spirit came upon Saul. Saul was tormented by this spirit. And 1 Samuel 16 says that whenever the spirit came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul and he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Living in such uh, proximity to the king, he was really indispensable to Saul. David became part of the royal family. Uh, He's sort of enmeshed in the royal family. He married Saul's daughter, and he made vows of deep friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. Sadly, Saul, over time, came to resent the young man who began to outshine him at every turn. Now, Saul was was reckless and impulsive as king, and he did what was right in his own eyes, eventually rejecting God's commands outright. 
In response, the prophet Samuel declared, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to someone better than you. Now, that's a very hard thing to hear, right, at any point, but especially as a king. Haunted by this rejection, Saul's jealousy of David increased when Samuel secretly anointed uh, David as Israel's next leader. Blessed by God, David enjoyed success in battle, increased popularity with the people. People thought, well, obviously David's going to be king at some point. We love David. Saul's kind of, you know, acting weird and, and crazy anyway. And it really bothered Saul. The crowds even had a chant. The people of Israel even had a chant. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Recognizing the shift in God's favor, Saul still became more afraid of David, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Saul's, as Saul's sanity unraveled, he vowed to kill his former friend. This culminated in a moment when they were at the dinner table and Saul picked up a spear and tried to kill David uh, at dinner. That's very awkward. Like, if you think your family dinners are awkward... <laughs> Like, you know, that's very bad. Your father-in-law tried to kill you and, you know, yeah, very strange. Um, So David fled into the wilderness with a band of fighters willing to stand with him against their king, this disturbed king. And in response, Saul sent his entire army after him and Saul went himself to pursue and kill David. So David and his men ended up hiding in caves or with people that were protecting them. And this overwhelming nature of his circumstances must have burdened David's heart because he knew he was the anointed king of Israel. He was going to be king at some point. He had lost everything he loved and his future seemed dark. Even more frustrating was that despite witnessing Saul at his worst, David had remained loyal and had never once plotted to overthrow Saul's rule. Everything that Saul was obsessed with was just in his head. Yet here he was, fleeing the man he'd lovingly served and protected. And then the story shifts dramatically in David's favor. So David and his men are hiding in the wilderness, uh, in in caves, and God delivered Saul into their very hands. So Saul, seeking a place to relieve himself... Okay, so he said, ah, there's a nice cave. He wandered into a seemingly empty place, ignorant of his danger. And there he stood, literally with his pants down. Okay, defenseless. Tense with anticipation, his men whispered, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. His men are standing around David saying, Saul's right there. This is your time to kill him, to take the throne. This is your moment. David's men, they're not wrong here, but they're not right either. David would be king someday, but God had never granted David the authority to kill Saul. Burdened with a decision that could alter his own life and the history of Israel itself, David sneaks up and he cuts off a corner of Saul's cloak a holy garment designed specifically for Israel's king. And in this moment, David shows us how self-control reorients the heart in three ways. First, self-control brings our erratic souls back into balance. 
Throughout their relationship, David and Saul served as sort of mirror images of one another. Tormented by an evil spirit, Saul was controlled by pride and volatile emotions, carried away, uh, carried along by whatever violent whim took hold of his heart in any given moment. He was not in control of himself. Saul models what Solomon writes later in Proverbs 25, that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Saul's entire life shows how sin pulls us away from God into increasingly erratic behavior. David, however, offers another way. If sin causes us to lose control, life with God frees us to put our hands back on the wheel and move toward level ground. Despite the chaos of his present and the uncertainty of his future, David trusts in God's presence and plans. Ignoring the advice of his men, David refuses to kill the king and makes a decision that honors both God and also Saul, his enemy. In this moment, David models what Solomon writes in Proverbs 16. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. Unlike Saul, David was in control because he walked with God and knew that God walked with him. David had surrendered his self to the Lord. Second, the virtue of self-control trains us to desire what God desires. Now, the actions of David and the cave reflect not human vengeance, but divine mercy. Yahweh delivered uh, Saul into David's hands, but out of deference to God and loyalty to Saul, David's hands go no further. Cutting off a piece of Saul's robe provides an opportunity for David to plead his case and maybe even shake Saul awake from his madness. Yes, David does want to be declared innocent and Saul to abandon his pursuit, but David's mercy also is an opportunity for Saul to return to the Lord. According to the law of Moses, Saul deserved death. All right, He deserved death at this point. Uh, long ago as king, he had been uh, ignoring the commands of God. He had stopped listening to the Lord a long time ago. So he was living in disobedience. But he also lied and bore false witness against David. Some of the Ten Commandments, the central part of the law, has a lot to say about. And he was currently trying his very best to kill David. Okay, so it wasn't just that he was lying and bearing false witness, but he was trying to murder him. Even on a personal level, David could have easily justified Saul's death as part of God's justice or grand plan. Saul was out of control. He needed to be removed. But the self-control David shows reflects a supernatural ability to extend grace. And it does, uh, it results in a breakthrough with Saul that would not have been possible in any other situation. David's choice here broke through the darkness of Saul's broken mind and allowed Saul to acknowledge the truth, that David would be king. But notice again that this moment doesn't happen in isolation. As Saul lost his mind, David consistently made the right but hard decisions. 
Many in Israel recognized Saul's instability, but David never spoke a word against Saul or tried to seize power before God placed David on the throne. Throughout his relationship with Saul, David restrained his own sense of importance, moderating his pride out of loyalty and obedience to Yahweh. Learning to desire what God desired, David gained control of his own soul. Finally, and this is where it's most remarkable. Self-control tunes our hearts to the more wonderful music of God's kingdom. In Greek mythology, uh, sirens, y'all know what sirens are. They're uh, so these mystical creatures who would entrance sailors with their singing away from their boats into the water, often to their doom. They were very dangerous. They show up in a lot of Greek mythology. Uh, when the Argonaut Orpheus passed by their islands, he determined that instead of resisting by sheer willpower or tying himself to the mast like Odysseus had done, he would charm himself and his men with a superior song, a song that was better than what the sirens were singing. So he used his lyre to play a song that captivated the hearts of his men, allowing them to resist temptation and continue their journey. And the life of faith, self-control flourishes not in resisting what's forbidden or avoiding all of the wrong things, but recognizing the beauty of God's promises. That is how self-control flourishes. Everything David does in the cave reflects his deep trust in God's declarations. He trusted God's plan, so he didn't need to grasp what wasn't yet his to claim. He was able to control himself because he knew that God had in mind, that whatever God had in mind was so much better than anything else he could do on his own. We find that same assurance when we keep our eyes on Jesus, or rather when we realize that Jesus has always had his eyes on us. Because he loves us, our Lord showers our lives with abundant signs of grace. Every blessing, an arrow pointing to eternal life. Our self-control doesn't rise from within us. It's not something that we can sort of manifest on our own. It comes from the Holy Spirit consistently redirecting our focus to our Lord and Savior. To looking at Jesus. Freeing us to savor all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Self-control teaches us to trust that God is moving in this world for the good of his children. And that even the deepest valleys cannot separate us from his love. When we see what God has done for us in Jesus. When our hearts and minds are focused on that one reality. The power of wrong desires is replaced with the joy of freely running into the arms of the Father. Self-control in the Christian life rests in recognizing the beauty of God's love and trusting him more than we trust ourselves. See, in the end, self-control is much more about surrender. Surrendering our hearts to the Lord. Letting him take control. 
See, David could have hurried God, but didn't. He could have killed Saul in the moment. He might have become king, but it wouldn't have been what God desired or designed. He trusted the slow, steady working out of God's purpose. Our God provides us not just with the ability to make the right choices, to be in control of our emotions or our, our words or our decisions, but transforms us into people that follow the commands of God because we have let him take control of our hearts and minds. When we surrender our hearts to God, he directs our reactions and choices. But best of all, self-control ushers us into the abundant life that Jesus promises where we find God has placed no limits, no laws on the good things of his kingdom. In Galatians 5, Paul says that uh, when he's talking about the fruits of the spirits, he says against such things, there is no law. Those things are designed to grow in us and to grow in us and to grow in us forever. British theologian G.K. Chesterton summarizes the life of faith in this way. He says, the more that I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule in order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. That is the result of self-control. Of when we surrender ourselves to God, we get to step in to the goodness of a life with God. The blessings of his kingdom start to come into our life, start to grow inside of us. By practicing the virtue of self-control, we too are free to run wild with the gifts of his kingdom today. So be encouraged. Hallelujah. Amen.